You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. For the next three weeks, we'll be continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. Then on the Sunday before Christmas, we'll pause and we'll focus our attention entirely on the incarnation, and then we'll pick up right after Christmas, again in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll keep working our way through this. Matthew chapter 5. If you're a parent or you work with children in any setting, there's a situation that you've probably encountered more times than you can count. It goes something like this. You're getting ready to leave a room that's been ransacked by children, and you're going to come back to that room in a few minutes, and when you return, you would like it to be cleaned up. So you say something like this. Kids, there's something I need to do, and when I get back, I want all the toys to be cleaned up. Now, when you come back several minutes later, more than enough time for the room to be spotless, you realize very quickly that there's still stuff strewn about everywhere. So you get the kid's attention and you ask something like this. Didn't I tell you when I left the room that I wanted it all cleaned up when I returned? In response to this most reasonable question, the kids, like good little Pharisees, say, you you only said you wanted us to pick up the toys. You didn't say anything about the books or the dress-up clothes or the balls or the markers or the shoes or the coloring books or the crayons. You see, somehow these children, normally very hard of hearing, have managed to hear precisely what you said and they interpreted your words very literally. Over time, parents learn to clarify, to give more detail so that instructions cannot be misunderstood, though they will be over and over again. Friends, this situation I just explained to you, it illustrates well what Jesus is dealing with in our text this morning. What we encounter in verses 21 through 26 builds immediately upon what Aaron so helpfully shared with us last week. So look at the text with me. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
So here's how the text breaks down. First, I want you to see an old command. Verse 21, an old command. Then in verse 22, an important clarification. And finally, in verses 23 through 26, I want you to see an interesting commission. First, an old command. Look at verse 21 again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So last week we heard again what is absolutely essential if we're to understand the Sermon on the Mount. While Jesus is primarily laying out the way of the kingdom, he does at points clarify the way into the kingdom. And the place where he does this most clearly is the text we studied last week, verses 17 through 20. If you miss that, go back and listen to it. In short, Jesus is the way into the kingdom. Jesus is the way into the kingdom. To quote Aaron, Jesus gives his true followers positional righteousness. That's Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus calls his true followers to practical righteousness. This is only possible through the new covenant. As the promised Messiah and the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, Jesus is the one to whom the whole Bible points. It is only through faith in Christ that anyone enters the kingdom of heaven. So now what's the connection? What's the connection between the text last week and this week? Having clarified that he, Jesus, is the way into the kingdom, Jesus is now going to expose how the law is being misapplied and misappropriated by some to emphasize the importance of external obedience and conformity, regardless of the condition of one's heart. So if Jesus is the way into the kingdom, then a new heart is required to enter into the kingdom, and only Jesus can do that. The Pharisees, religious teachers would say, no, you can work your way in. You can do these things. One theologian describes the setting into which Jesus is speaking this way, and I want you to hear this. Jesus is speaking in a religious context in which the teachers of the law and the Pharisees held sway over the lives of the common people. The Pharisees had mapped out what they considered to be the proper course for attaining righteousness through their interpretation and application of the Old Testament. One facet of this regimen was a tendency to require legalistic external obedience to the law without calling attention to an inner obedience from the heart. Jesus is correcting that. So in response and for our benefit, Jesus offers clarity in the midst of confusion. And I want you to see that while Jesus is primarily confronting error in our text, he is doing so with an eye toward the comfort of ordinary everyday believers who might be very confused so brothers and sisters, Jesus does something exceedingly kind and gracious here. And this is one of those points that I think it's easy to miss if you're not reading this 
carefully. Jesus does something exceedingly kind and gracious here. I think there's, there's something we need to pause and consider before moving on. In the Beatitudes, Jesus calls his people to walk in his way. A way marked by poverty of spirit, humility, meekness, mercy, peacemaking, and joy in the face of persecution. Now here's what I want you to see. The one who perfectly embodies humility and meekness and mercy, he does not shrink back when he sees the scriptures being misinterpreted and misused. Especially when the scriptures are being twisted in a way that that takes the gospel of grace and refashions it into a damning system of legalistic works. The one who is humble and meek and merciful does not shy away from conflict when the integrity of scripture and the eternal joy of sinners is at stake. So don't miss this. The way of Jesus demands bold and courageous action, clothed in humility and motivated by love for God and for neighbor. So notice, notice how Jesus combats and refutes the error of the Pharisees. He quotes an Old Testament command In verse 21, a command that is good and right, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is the sixth commandment. Friends, this is the unchanging law of God. But Jesus says to the gathered crowd and to us that there is something, there is more to the equation than mere obedience to an external standard. You see, the Pharisees, The Pharisees were like the children I mentioned when I began. Their righteousness was limited to a list of rules. If mom and dad said, pick up the toys, as long as the command was technically obeyed, they could check that off the list. The same was true for murder. The law said don't commit murder, so as long as these Pharisees technically obeyed that command, they could check that off their righteousness checklist. Didn't kill anybody. I'm all good there. In response, Jesus says, hold on. There is more to this than mere obedience. This brings us to our second point. First, an old command. Second, an important command. Clarification. Now, before I move on, let me, let me warn you, as Jesus takes aim at the Pharisees, I want to warn you to be careful. Tim Keller reminds us that the fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. So keep this in mind, brothers and sisters, as we move through our text. An important clarification, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the the hell of fire. Well, this just got serious. Again, Aaron did a wonderful job of laying the groundwork for this last week when he introduced the pattern that we find repeated six times in the remainder of chapter 5. 
You can see it there if you just look quickly. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Six times. When Jesus begins, you have heard it said, he is highlighting the superficial, external obedience of the Pharisees. But when he declares, but I say to you, Jesus is calling his children, those who have been gloriously saved, regenerated, filled with the spirit, adopted. He is calling elect exiles, citizens of his kingdom to an application of the law that runs far deeper than mere obedience. Jesus is after the heart. He's interested in what's below the surface. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven has more to do with hearts than checklists. You see, friends, in Scripture, the heart is used to describe the inner person. It encompasses many other terms and functions, spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will. In fact, we could say it this way. Biblically speaking, your heart is the real you, the essential core of who you are. It's the true person within you. If you pull back the curtain on someone's heart, you find out who they really are. According to the word of God, all sin begins in the heart and only manifests itself in actions and behaviors. So sin is never simply a wrong action. Sin begins below the surface in the heart. It is bound up in inordinate cravings and desires that become visible in actions, like murder and adultery stealing. For the Pharisee or the person with a Pharisaical mindset, this one can look at their life and go through a checklist. Nope. Haven't murdered anyone. Nope. Haven't committed adultery. The list could go on and on. And as long as this person fills out the checklist correctly, they're righteous. They're all good. Jesus is confronting this kind of thinking by saying, okay, I understand that you have kept yourself from these particular sinful actions, but I wonder about your heart. I want to go deeper. I want to push past this inaccurate and simplistic understanding of righteousness as a moral checklist, and I want to know what's going on in your heart. I want to get to the level of motivation, of craving and conflict and lust and desire, of worship. What is it that you want most? Look at verses 21 and 22 again and, and think about those again in light of what I've just said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is saying something fairly shocking here. According to Jesus, murder, listen, murder 
is the sinful symptom. It's the overflow of a heart that is gripped by anger. In fact, I want to use Scripture to help you understand Scripture. So turn with me to James chapter 4. James 4. James was obviously listening when his half-brother taught because there are echoes of the Sermon on the Mount all throughout the book of James. James chapter 4. And I want you to look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So let me pull together the words of Jesus and James and offer you a handful of observations that will ultimately, I hope, help us grasp the point Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first one. Your deepest problem, your deepest problem in any given situation is not outside of you. It's inside of you. Your deepest problem in any given situation is not outside of you, it's inside of you. What does James say? These are your passions at war within you. You desire, you covet, and then you fight. This truth is particularly confrontational for the pharisaical heart that likes to claim strict adherence to the law or to place blame on people and circumstances. Never owning up to and taking responsibility for personal sin. This is the person who loves to say things like, she makes me angry. Really? The way she acted left you with no choice and no control. You had you had to respond in arrogance and sinful anger. Here's the second observation here. There is a progression we can follow that leads to the sinful act of murder. Passions war within you. You want and you do not get. So you fight and quarrel and you do not get. So you murder. So let's put this in Jesus' words. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I tell you, do not crave and desire anything so strongly that you would lash out in fighting and quarreling, whereby you murder those around you with your violent words. A third observation. Simply being able to claim that you have not murdered does not mean that you are righteous. Remember, the righteousness that Jesus calls for is not primarily a personal attainment of ethical purity. Righteousness belongs in the realm of grace, and it comes through Christ alone. 
Again, Jesus is far more concerned with your heart than your checklist. Fourth and final observation here, while murder is clearly a sin, don't confuse that, it is the fruit of a heart that is being ruled by some inordinate desire. And this is true whether we're talking about murder or some other sin. Pornography and and other kinds of sexual fantasy, greed and dishonesty, abusive behaviors. Below the surface, there is something you and I want so bad that we're willing to sin to get it. Our focus, friends, should never merely be on avoiding bad behaviors and adopting good ones. We need God's grace to cut deep, to get below the surface, to transform us from the inside out. We need to experience what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of new affection. We need this or we have no real hope, do we? For the Pharisees, it was all about the outside. But for Jesus, it's not that the outside doesn't matter at all. But the conversation always has to start with the heart. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verses 21 and 22. One Last time, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What are we to make of the repeated references to judgment? Well, in verse 21, it makes sense. If you murder, you will be held responsible for that heinous act. Now, obviously, an angry heart and an insulting tongue will will likely never be tried in courts like, like murder will be. But as one commentator writes, and I want you to hear this, in Jesus's court, the vicious thought and intent are no less culpable than the act itself. In other words, friends, Jesus profoundly cares about your heart. He cares about your motives. He cares about the anger and the lust boiling up underneath the surface. And the simple warning here is that you should care too. Well, you may be able to fool everyone with a kind of outward morality and you will likely avoid any kind of legal prosecution during your lifetime if If your heart is ruled by idolatry and sinful passions, then someday you may find yourself standing guilty in the court of heaven. That's the warning. And it's a serious one. Friends, I want to take just a moment to plead with some of you Your eternal destiny is not something you want to play around with. This is not a game. You may have everyone fooled. You 
come to church, you read your Bible, you work hard, and in fact, you even live a kind of morally upright life. But you know, you know what rages beneath the surface. You're so angry. You're so bitter. You're so controlled by sinful lust and greed. Now, I'm not bringing this up to condemn you, but to plead with you. To plead with you with the, with the words of Jesus from this very sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a note of hope. Humble yourself. Come to Jesus. He will give you grace. He will receive you and forgive you. Simply come to him in honesty with a contrite heart and he will give you a new heart and make you a new creation. Jesus began by announcing an old command. Don't murder but then he quickly offered an important clarification. Also, guard your heart from being gripped with anger. Finally, Jesus delivers an interesting commission. I find this in verses 23 through 26. Look at the text with me. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge or the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In these four verses, Jesus illustrates just how serious he is about the heart by offering two illustrations of reconciliation. He just addressed the evil division that is caused by anger and insult. So here's kind of a flip side of that. If I had to sum up Jesus' instructions here, I would, I would say this. Jesus is moving us past mere obedience or external adherence to the law. He is commissioning his people to deal quickly with sin. Motivated by the gospel, propelled by the Holy Spirit, deal quickly with sin the moment you feel it flaring up inside of you before it grips your heart and leads to greater sin and potential judgment. So let me explain the second example first. Verses 25 and 26, here's the scenario. A disciple is being accused and taken to court and will likely end up in prison and will not be released from prison until every penny owed to his accuser is paid back. The general lesson here is about unresolved, broken relationships. Do whatever it takes to come to terms, to, to make peace with your accuser. To put it bluntly, this is what Christians do. 
And to put it another way, R.T. France writes, this is a warning for those whose earthly relationships do not conform to the values of the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, if God has reconciled sinners to himself by the blood of Jesus, then the relationships of believers should not be marked by selfish anger and animosity. They should be marked by sacrificial love and a radical reconciliation. Now look at verses 23 and 24. Here's the other illustration we're given. Someone is offering a gift at the altar, but this is no generic altar. Jesus would have had in mind the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. But remember that he is sharing this story in Galilee, some 80 miles from Jerusalem. And this is an important detail to Jesus' story here. Someone has traveled 80 miles to offer a sacrifice of worship to God, and as they're making their offering, something comes to mind. And it's some division that exists with a Christian brother. In our setting, it would, it would be like a, a fellow church member. Notice what happens next in the text. When this person thinks about the need for reconciliation, what does he do? He leaves his gift at the altar and he immediately travels the 80 miles. This is what Jesus is telling. This is his commission. He travels the 80 miles back home to make sure things are right with his brother. Then he travels the 80 miles back again and makes his offering with a clear conscience. Now the Pharisees hearing this story would have scoffed. They would have thought it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Who on earth would go through all that trouble to make things right with their brother? Just do what you came to do and then afterward you can make things right. Who would do this? Well, here's the answer. Someone who understands the importance of the heart. Someone whose actions are motivated and informed by the love of Christ who left heaven to seek and to save those who despised and rejected him. Friends, in our text this morning, we see past simple law-keeping and we're meant to look at the heart and in the illustrations and stories Jesus offers, we find, listen, we find that a heart gripped by sin will lash out in anger and insult, but a heart that is gripped by grace will pursue peace, will pursue forgiveness, will pursue reconciliation, no matter what cost. This is the commission of Christ to his people. In these illustrations, what do we find? We find a contrast, right? The, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, what are they concerned with? External obedience, keep the law 
precisely. And as long as you do that, nothing else matters. And Jesus says, no, let me flesh out what I talked to you about in the Beatitudes with some examples. What did I say in the Beatitudes? What is the good life? Is it simply keeping the law? Is it mere obedience or is it something more? Is it a heart that is so gripped with the grace of God that you have received in Christ that it produces a kind of life that manifests itself in humility and meekness and mercy and rejoicing in the face of persecution? And so Jesus says, okay, here's, here's the contrast. Pharisees or those who think like Pharisees say, I didn't murder, I'm fine. And Jesus says, but, but that's not my way. I'm concerned about something more. I'm concerned about your heart. And how do, we, how do you know that I have your heart? Well, you would do something like this. You would show up to offer a sacrifice or a, a gift. And if you were pricked in your conscience, you would leave and you would walk 80 miles and you would go and you would make that right because you don't want that taking hold of your heart. This is what the gospel produces in you. Not mere obedience, but worship. A heart that is captured by Christ and then produces works. It's not the other way around. So as we close, I want to share, I want to share the words of a song that we, we know quite well. This wonderful song reminds us of the futility of our own righteousness and it drives us to treasure Christ. And the more we treasure Christ, the more our hearts will be gripped by grace. This song confronts us and it comforts us. For the one walking in the way of the Pharisees, let this further correct your thinking. And for the one who has been taught legalism, and so you're constantly feeling crushed under the weight of the law. I pray this will comfort you. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live, but Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. 
My God is merciful to me and, and merciful in Christ alone. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. And he alone can give me rest. Oh, mere obedience is not good news. The gospel of the grace of God in the perfect life and substitutionary death of Christ, that is good news. His righteousness imputed us by faith. This is good news, and this alone can give us rest. Let's pray.